Dancey, Bojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips bringing you weekly check-ins with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community throughout southern Manitoba and across the country. This week's show, we're going to keep it in-house. Big things happened this week, and it was a tough weekend if you were in Indian country. If you're a member of the community, if you're an ally of the community, it was a tough weekend. Friday night, as I fade out in the high walk, they're our opening for this season. This is uh, season 2.2, episode 6 of At the Edge of Canada. We are live today, and we're live today because of the enormity of this weekend's events, the acquittal of Gerald Stanley, and the lack of hashtag justice for Colton Bushy. It was a topic of conversation between me and many members of my uh, immediate community and my circle here in Winnipeg, not to mention my family back home in Alberta. And I talked to a ton of folks uh, involved in this, in this some of us close to the family as, as you can get, and uh, some of us who spend most of our time intellectualizing these things and talking them out analytically. And to do that, I thought I would actually bring one of uh, my colleagues here at the University of Manitoba on the show, including uh, somebody I consider a friend, one of the newest faculty members here at the University of Manitoba in Native Studies, somebody very popular on social media in Indian Twitter, and that's... Uh, Dallas Hunt. Dallas, thanks for being on. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks for having me. Uh, I always like to give people the opportunity to introduce themselves in their language, and I know that uh, you are a speaker of the Cree language, and so I'd love to hear you introduce yourself uh, in Cree, if that's cool. Sure. So, Tansu Nita Temtek, Dallas Hunt Nitsukasan, so hi, I'm Dallas Hunt. Um, I'm Cree, and I'm from Swan River First Nation, which is in Treaty Territory in northern Alberta. Not to be mistaken with the Swan River in Manitoba. Correct, yes. Which, which you always have to tell people here uh, that it's not this Swan River, but Swan River AB, not MB. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we'll just do a little check-in with you and where you're at since you got here. You've been on the ground, boots on the ground in the Red River Valley since... January 1st? Was that the day you got here? Yeah. Uh, no, I got here December 28th, I'm going to say, right in the middle of that cold Oh, snap. right, so right. Minus 50. Winnipeg embraced me with open arms. So. <laughs> it isn't uh, proper if you don't get a chilly welcome. I think it was about minus 35 when I landed in February 2016. Uh, since you've been on the ground now, you have uh, uh, a lot of work ahead of you, not to mention you're completing your dissertation to the University of BC, but you also have a teaching mandate. What courses are you teaching right now? Uh, right now, I'm teaching an introduction, introdu- in, introductory uh, Native Studies course, so Native uh, 1240, I believe, NATV 1240 is the um, course code, uh, and that's an introduction to Native peoples within Canada. I'm also teaching Native 2000, which is Contemporary Indigenous Scholarship. Cool. And uh, how are those classes going so far? They're going great. Um, one of the joys of being in Winnipeg for me is I'm from the prairies, so from Alberta, um, where when you grow up in the prairies, you there's a high likelihood that you're going to see a lot of indigenous communities and peoples just in your everyday life. So, uh, which is not to say that when I was in Vancouver recently that there were no indigenous peoples there. Communities, of course, there are. But in Winnipeg, uh, you really are confronted with indigenous bodies and spaces, and it's just uh, a great thing to see. Yeah, it's a, it was one of the things I noticed, too, right away coming back from southern Ontario is just the indigenous population is so high in this province. It's awesome to see, um, uh, you know, Nietzsche's in all sectors is what I like to say. Um, as for your work itself, you're, you're trained as a lit scholar. Uh, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but could you give me the elevator speech of what you work on proper? I love this question, Trevor. <laughs> Thanks for asking it. Um, yeah, I look at a variety of things. So uh, my research uh, looks at urban indigeneity a little bit. So I think uh, what I try to do is look at the urban as a productive lens through which to look at everything from nationhood to gender relations to kinship relations to just uh, you know how that manifests in a sort of colonial uh, how colonial violence manifests over time in a variety of spaces, but specifically in urban environments. I, I also look at kinship relations in Treaty 8 territory. And, um, 
Yeah, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> it could probably keep going. And one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show is is precisely for that little uh, little snippet, uh, how colonial violence manifests itself over time. And we're going to get to that when we dig in a little bit deeper into some of the historical and biopolitical reasons as to why Gerald Stanley got an acquittal in that trial. Uh, before we set the groundwork on that, uh, I just want to uh, let people know that you could check Dallas out on Twitter. Dallas, what's your Twitter handle? I believe it's just my name, so Dallas underscore Hunt. And he does Cree Word of the Day. That's where his uh, his social media cachet comes from, right? Is that what launched you into the Superstrat, other than trolling LeBron, John, uh, LeBron James or any <laughs> other famous basketball players? I wouldn't troll LeBron. I'm, <laughs> I stand for LeBron. Um, no, uh, yeah, basically what happened was um, I joined Twitter because I was interested in the discussions that were going on there and all the wonderful creative sort of vibrant discussions and people and it just was a great place to encounter other indigenous peoples from across not only Canada but globally as well and what I started to do was I just started to um, so I'm not a fluent language speaker but it's something that I aspire to and hope to someday become so what I started to do is just tweet a word of the day for myself I'd say it five to ten times write it down five to ten times and then after that I would tweet it and then what happened was, yeah, people started to just take an interest in that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the first places I saw your Twitter was uh, on Cree Word of the Day. And it's always a fun one to retweet. It's usually topical, too. There's usually something that you retweet out, some word that makes sense. I think for LeBron James, uh, you had, uh, was it crying or to cry was the Cree word that you were? Yeah. It's a motto. And it was after he won the. Uh, uh, the finals the right. championship, he was hugging somebody and crying. And yeah, seemed <laughs> that, appropriate. That was appropriate. It was good. And, and uh, you're always usually spot on with those tweets. All right. So I talked to you. We, we hung out for, uh, Saturday night. Uh, we were texting about this on Friday. We chatted about this yesterday and before we came on air. Uh, the acquittal of Gerald Stanley in his second degree murder trial for the murder of Colton Bushy. If you're not familiar with the details of this case, we're going to work backwards from where we're at today. Where we're at today is Gerald Stanley was acquitted on Friday. On Saturday, there was multiple actions throughout Canada, uh, protests in Vancouver, Saskatoon, um, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, including uh, some reserves. I know OCN held a protest in action. I'm sure uh, there were other spaces that had it. And then today, after Sunday, after a day of uh, coffee and contemplation, it seemed now every intellectual that we have in Indian country is starting to weigh in on this. Uh, politicians have started to speak about it. Um, there was a document released in which you were undersigned in by academics on the prairies that were uh, basically a call to action on how to teach this this moment. Um, so where we're at today is we're, we are processing these feelings and we're processing how it felt on Friday. I know folks who, for example, Dallas, I know one, one of my close colleagues was at a wedding and said, I'm just not going to think about this until after this wedding so I can deal with how, how, how I feel about all of this. Um, and now it's it's Monday after it's Monday morning, and we're talking about all of these different things. Robert Jago's written about it. Uh, we've seen multiple tweets. Um, where do you feel like this is at? I, I, one of the words I heard you say before we went on air was, "It feels overwhelming almost to see all of the content coming out that's trying to analyze the verdict and and what this means for Indigenous non Indigenous relations, what it means for reconciliation." How are you feeling right now with just all of this knowledge being shared and all these critiques coming out? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Um, there are a lot of incisive, uh, very good pieces of their analyses. Um, but you're right. Uh, there has been a sort of, uh, after the verdict came down, there's been a uh, sort of um, in very uh, prolonged or seems to be from the minute the verdict came down engagement with uh, what had gone on in the case. And it is... Overwhelming in the sense that we're getting more details as we have throughout the trial, but also that it's it's a thing that I think affectively affects a lot of people in ways that are both intellectual, of course, mm -hmm. but also in ways that are emotional and uh, psychological and just all of these other sort of attachments or entanglements that kind of associate themselves with these things. So when I said it was overwhelming, it... Yeah, I was speaking to not only the sheer amount of information, some of it is misinformation, of course, uh, but also the sort of 
um, affective or emotional responses that are just kind of pouring out from Indian country. And also the affective responses that are coming from non-Indigenous peoples, in the mm. prairies especially. And most of those are vile and racist and hateful. And, um, yeah, there, there are a lot to deal with, mm. for sure. Absolutely, yeah. The, the negative and the not constructive contributions that some folks are making in some mediums is, is not advancing this conversation in any way. As an instructor and your responsibility to your students here at the University of Manitoba, what's your tact? How are you going to teach this? How are you going to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, luckily I've uh, I have very amazing students, um, some of whom have already emailed me about this issue and requested that we do talk about it in class uh, today and uh, tomorrow and the days I teach this week. So we're probably going to use some of the readings that I assigned to mm-hmm. help contextualize this a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I also plan to you know, hold a bit of a forum and just see how people are dealing with this, what their reactions are, um, what are some of the reactions they're seeing, and how do they feel about those reactions. Um, yeah, just really allowing space for students, and many of whom are Indigenous youth from the prairies and mm-hmm. feel directly, you know, uh, affected by this, um, just giving them some room to speak and, you know, vent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sort of a, a cautious discussion, a cautious platform for seeing what kind of visceral responses you might even get from students who may just be for the first time in your class negotiating or processing the theoretical relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country, which I always find is an incredibly vulnerable site of intellectualizing. I don't think we put enough, I, I personally, this is just opinion, I don't think we put enough time and energy as instructors into just how precious that moment is when some indigenous and some non-indigenous students are contemplating this relationship for the first time through the filter of something as enormous as a murder trial. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, I had to come uh, keep coming back to this word, but it is overwhelming and uh, I can't uh, imagine um, not only what the the family of uh, Colton Bushy are going through, but also, you know, um, what students who are a similar age to Colton and, you know, live in or on the prairies and have these interactions, how they feel, how this, you know, I've heard comments such as, you know, this feels like it's open season uh, for you know violence enacted against indigenous peoples and for indigenous youth particularly who seem to be the site of a lot of colonial violence um, it's definitely an area of very real and very material concern and so um, yeah I'm just trying to be a or host a site wherein my students can speak about this in ways that allows them to express that and also to figure out sort of how we got here. How how mm. do we get to this trial, this murder, this case? Uh, what are the conditions that sort of subtend these things? And so, you know, part of my job or what I would like to do in my classroom is kind of see if we can trace a sort of, it's not exactly linear, but there is a sort of, you know, there's a story or a narrative at work here. Mm-hmm. And just to try to parse that out. The other calls that we've been hearing, and I'll use this as a segue as we as we move backwards in in happenings and in goings on since the verdict came down, is folks like Leanne Simpson and Cataract Wednesday Dam saying, "Take care of students right now. Um, be mindful of their processing um, because this is an incredibly vulnerable time for." Indigenous youth, especially, uh, who are going through this process of trying to understand what just happened. Uh, we're going to talk about the vis- visceral components of what it felt like Friday night to, to hear the news. And then we're going to also talk about some of the larger implications of settler colonial biopolitics. This is At the Edge of Canada on UMFM 101.5. I am TJ Phillips in studio today, live for you uh, with uh, one of the newest uh, faculty members here at the University of Manitoba in, in Native Studies, Dallas Hunt. Uh, we have been gifted the time to go uh, to the top of the hour by station manager Jared McKediak today to talk about this really important issue. So I thank him for that space and uh, allowing us to preempt your campus today if you were tuning in for that. So if we're working backwards from Friday, and really if we're working backwards from, say, contact on the prairies, 
then what happened on Saturday in the city was a special moment of organizing and social justice mobility in the city as there was um, a meeting at the Forks and then a march to the law courts. You happened to be there. I was calling hockey on UMFM, so I couldn't get there right away. I didn't get there till later. Didn't try to get there till later. But you were here. We had You had friends in town as well that were visiting. Um, tell me about how it felt to take part in that action and that uh, gathering that happened uh, at the Forks uh, for, for Colton. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing um, turnout, uh, for sure. Um, so when the verdict was announced, I was out. Um, uh, I'm a basketball fan, but I was actually at a hockey game mm-hmm. um, with a friend, and uh, it just came in on our cell phones, and, you know, it kind of cast a pall all of, you know, over the whole kind of proceedings, which, you know, was understandable, and... Uh, but the the sheer amount of organizing that went on from the moment that sort of that verdict was announced to the very next day was um, was incredible, and I think mm-hmm. it spoke speaks to the way in which you know Indigenous peoples felt about this trial. I think it also spoke to the way in which Indigenous peoples were somewhat expecting mm-hmm. an outcome like this, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, everybody was quick to mobilize. The turnout was uh, was great, and there were speakers. Everybody, um, you know, uh, extending their support and solidarity for the Bushy, Baptiste, and Tatusis families. Um, and yeah, it was. We marched to the uh, courthouse, and uh, it was it was great. It was a vibrant place of solidarity of rage of uh love um Hmm. and it was yeah it was it was a sight to behold yeah i I was uh on twitter all friday night after the verdict dropped after i got back from calling hockey looking to find out when winnipeg's news was going to drop uh was seeing ottawa saskatoon edmonton calgary vancouver victoria all of these places where protests were going to happen i think it was monique warniak from wpl was the first one i saw tweet out the exact location i think uh, negan sinclair was on that as well but it was erica violet lee who is uh who's from saskatoon uh and who was tweeting out all of the points uh on the hashtag uh, justice for colton bushi through that tag um Yesterday, we were intellectualizing a little bit about what social media does to this process. And I had said to you, I felt echoes of Idle No More in this quick, quick organizing. Um, And we were thinking through the ways in which that pulse is still alive and how it it can ignite so quickly to organize very fast. Uh, The verdict came down, what, 7.30 our time, 8.30 our time Friday night. By 2 p.m. the next day, we had 1,000 people marching down Broadway Street. The question I have for you is a little bit more analytical, though. The question I have for you is, why is protest so important for Indigenous and non-Indigenous allies in the wake of this verdict? Why do you think it's so important that we that we did go out to march? Uh, what does that do for social justice? Yeah, I think that's a huge question and an important question. I think it does a variety of things. I think it uh, hopefully... Um, allows people to register the sort of uh, immense uh, rage and grief and sense of injustice that Indigenous peoples are feeling about a verdict such as this. Um, I think that it lets them know that, uh, you know, this is not okay and that Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples and communities are not okay with this violence continuing, you know, unabated and that... Even the act of walking in the streets of Winnipeg is a radical action. Um, taking up space, stopping traffic, these are all things that, you know, assert that Indigenous peoples <clears throat> are here and they're very much uh, continue to be here and will be here into the future. And so a protest with that, I think, hopefully allows people that are maybe not sympathetic to these issues or to indigenous peoples more generally. Uh, it's my hope, and I'm sure the hope of many, that these protests allow them to register kind of, you know, indigenous vibrancy and vitality mm-hmm. in life. And mm-hmm. especially in a time when, you know, 
these very same peoples are a part of or perhaps complicit in a system that is so heavily invested in indigenous death. Hmm. It is a striking juxtaposition from the acquittal of the murder of Colton Bushy to the immediate organization and activity and action of indigenous folks. You're right. That, that is a, a completely stark uh, juxtaposition. And the actions are so important because it reminds me of the way in which folks rallied to Trump being elected or rallied to Canada 150, how that there needs to be a peaceable or peaceful resistance to actions that can't be stopped. Um, even even with uh, perceivably democratically elected processes, that there needs to be a way for the moral majority to voice its opinion. And um, in this particular instance, this model, this theater, marching down Broadway or any other street towards law courts especially, I was curious what you thought about that as a symbol as folks marching from spaces of intersection to spaces of the judicial system. Yeah, I mean, it was very fraught, the entire um, kind of proceedings. I should say that the organizers and the speakers that were at the march did say that this was a march for of peace and love mm-hmm. uh, for Indigenous peoples themselves, but for non-Indigenous allies who, uh, you know, support the, the Bushy family and Indigenous peoples more generally. So... Um, I think part part of what a protest can do is allow people like that to also voice their discomfort or displeasure with a system that allows for these things to happen. Um, so there were a lot of non-Indigenous uh, allies or accomplices or whatever you would call them at the uh, at the march as well. As to the kind of spatial configuration of it, it was quite interesting to be surrounded by so many indigenous peoples to hear, um, you know, singing, uh, the drum and just, you know, outbursts of anger followed by people comforting one another. And then to be, you know, positioned directly across from the courthouse and to be surrounded by police vehicles. Uh, you know, many of these objects or symbols are kind of, are symbolic of the larger processes that kind of went on in the case. So it, it is striking to hmm. be simultaneously honoring Colton Bushy, but also um, being surrounded by such a heavy, punitive kind of system hmm. as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was it was quite striking. Strikes me just now, and this is not to undercut your point in any way, Dallas, but. Uh, the notion that what happens when intellectuals protest is that you get this very intense self-reflection that's also happening at the same time. It's just one of those weird things that we do when we're analyzing every dang thing that we do. And even when we're protesting and doing something incredibly embodied or we're being embodied sites of resistance. Yeah, I think that also what the protests allowed many of us to do, I think, was to actually, you know, express this grief and rage. Yeah. So I think that... Uh, well, I am, and you know, I am in academia, and I spend too much of my time, I would say, thinking about stuff. Uh, it did allow space to actually just feel things and to mm-hmm. embody, sort of, feel this kind of, um, you know, a whole variety of or litany of feelings. But it was hard not to notice, just in a sort of sensory way. Um, I know the, um, you know. The, the presumption is, or the way it's framed, is that the, the police are there to kind of, you know, make sure the progression of peoples can flow in a way that's uninterrupted and, you know, is safe from potentially some sort of violent incursion from people that might not support what this protest is about. But it still is quite striking to see, um, uh, I think for indigenous peoples in general, and I don't want to, you know, overgeneralize here, but seeing, you know, police officers sometimes can be a very um, triggering yeah. or sort of uh, uh, can cause a variety of emotions to kind of manifest themselves. So I was also very much impressed by the sheer 
will of everybody to just focus their attention on what this march was about and um yeah really express a solidarity with and a grief about this trial and this verdict yeah absolutely this is uh at the edge of canada with tj phillips dallas hunt in studio uh one of the newest faculty members in the, in the department of native studies here at the university of manitoba we're talking about colton bushy and the acquittal of gerald stanley that uh sent a ripple and a shockwave through the indigenous community here in canada or the country we call canada the feeling though is that there was a a ton of apprehension. And as we dig into the back half an hour, as I said, uh, your campus today being preempted so we can have a little bit of space to talk about this this trial and this verdict, is that when this dropped on Friday night and we were all doing our different things, I was on the air calling hockey, you were at a hockey game, some people were at weddings, as much anger, immediate visceral anger that we had at seeing that he got off there was still a huge dose of cynicism from Indigenous folks knowing that he probably was going to get off. And that, I think, ran through every response that I saw after the verdict came down. Having said that, the visceral response to seeing it for me, I I felt stunned. And I felt like, I felt a kind of grief and a kind of stunning that only happens when you feel like something outside of your control just happened to you like a death or a sickness or something it felt in that register when the state conspired to acquit this this man of murdering this indigenous youth and i was and i my whole body just rebelled against this this notion that i was i was supposed to feel like justice was served and i could only feel the opposite i could only imagine what it felt like for members of the family of which my heart immediately leapt out towards, and I felt incredibly sad for them and was immediately praying for them. Is that what happened for you, too? I'm, I'm not alone in this. This, was, this wasn't some, like, Benedict Anderson, like, imagined community of grief. This was, a, this was a literal thing that happened to everybody. Yeah, I think everybody immediately felt the weight of this. And you're right, I think there was a lot of cynicism beforehand, but I don't think that affected in any way anybody's support of the family and uh, the family's, um, you know, search for justice. Um, It is a strange kind of phenomenon to sort of appeal to the very systems that seem to be inflicting violence upon you, Mm. right? So... um, but unfortunately, those are the mechanisms that we have at our disposal right now. Um, I mean, there has been a campaign historically to make things like Indigenous law, uh, you know, perish or cease to exist. And while I don't think that has totally succeeded, it isn't the sort of dominant paradigm of how we, you know, mm-hmm. administer justice between uh, each other and uh, people that we have relations to, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um so what I will say is I, too, felt the weight. I, I was, I will admit, um, one of those cynical people who, um, while I didn't necessarily think that uh, Stanley would be acquitted, um, I thought there would at least be a manslaughter charge or something. Yeah. So when there was just a complete lack of anything resembling justice, it was... You know, I was I was at a loss for words similar to you. So yeah. Um, so let's dig into the absolute. Uh, what's the word we've been using? The um, what's the it was pros, uh, with a p. Uh, the preposterity. How well, preposterous the defense right. of Gerald Stanley was. So. He was acquitted of uh, second-degree murder, and, and, and they never even talked about manslaughter. Uh, I borrow how preposterous the defense was of Gerald Stanley from Hayden King's Twitter, who brought it up right after the event. He's, how ridiculous, and Robert Jago talked about this in his Canada Land article, how incredibly, how implausible the hanging fire, the hang fire defense, the magic bullet theory that this gun just went off. So for any of you who don't know the details and the nuts and bolts of this case, essentially what the defense alleged of Gerald Stanley is that um, he shot a 
old Russian handgun into the air to scare away the youth who had pulled onto his into his uh, property looking for help with a flat. Um, there was accusations and allegations that they tried to steal an ATV. Gerald Stanley fired into the air with this handgun that he retrieved from his shed. He shot two fires into the air, and then he went to the SUV where Colton Bushy was in. He tried to pull the keys out of the car, and at the time that he was doing that with his left hand, the gun magically went off. And Bushy was killed execution style, as was described in the trial, with a bullet wound to the back of his head. The defense claimed that it was a hang fire, that due to bad, an unclean gun, an old gun, bad ammunition, that a bullet hung in the chamber and just miraculously went off. Nobody pulled the trigger in. Nobody pulled the trigger. He didn't aim to shoot him. It just happened. Now, what's missing in this defense, Dallas, is no claim of self-defense, despite there being allusions and language to you know keeping your property and, and protecting your property. But also what's in this is no claim of, of self-defense. What happened was here was a complete accident. There was no intention to shoot him. How did that create reasonable doubt in an all-white jury? How does that create reasonable doubt f- to, for an acquittal in a situation that seems like, at the very least, this is careless use of a, of a firearm, that this is manslaughter, that in some way Gerald Stanley is on the hook for the, the, the death of Colton? Explain that to me, because I think that's what we're all wondering, is how do we get to this point? Yeah, I mean, the sheer amount of um, conflicting testimony, it seemed, and uh, reasons or justifications for the murder of Colton Bushy provided during the trial were kind of flabbergasting in what was being proposed. So the way I tried to understand it was that um, I guess the claim was that it was an accidental misfire or hang fire. Um, I believe the defense at one point wanted to use a Reddit thread to somehow prove that, which was also ridiculous. Um, so it's a misfire. It's an accident, uh, an accident that was described as an execution style, you know, murder simultaneously. You had the defense, I think, really working very hard to conjure up a lot of um, imagery and um, cultivate a sort of sense of fear around all of the events that went on that day. Uh, The defense said that uh, it was Gerald Stanley's castle and that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to protect your castle? I mean, a castle already is kind of loaded, especially in a place like Battleford, with all this sort of fraught historical colonial imagery. Um, And then just to really um, focus in on how frightened Gerald Stanley Mm -hmm. was, right? So you simultaneously outline, or what sounded like to me, a sort of outline of the reasons he would potentially murder these or this indigenous youth, which is his fear the protection of his property, his castle. Um, and yet it's also described as a an accident, a misfire or, or a hang fire. So you simultaneously sort of have the defense, at least I feel, sort of providing a dog's breakfast of like excuses, right? Mm-hmm. It was a misfire, but it was also potentially self-defense, or if we're not going to say something like that explicitly, we're certainly going to apply it to the language we use and through the imagery that we're going to sort of deploy for this kind of, uh, for this defense. I think that um, it was an appeal made to an all-white jury, and I think the the defense asked the jury to, the all-white jury, to put themselves in Jerry's boots or whatever the phrase it was that they used, to feel this sense of fear, to make it palatable or palpable, and to... uh, make it seem as though he was justified in what was apparently an accidental fire. It is it is so flabbergasting and, uh, and sort of overwhelming because, to me, a lot of it doesn't actually kind of add up or make sense. And not to mention the sort of conflicting testimony between Stanley and his son and how this is all c- complicates matters entirely. It also sounded mm-hmm. like Gerald Stanley had four arms or something. He was able to do a variety of things uh, in the matter of like in a matter of seconds, basically, 
um yeah i was stunned when i was listening to that kind of the to 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 that testimony mm-hmm. and i think hayden king's tweet and the way that you articulated it right there this this notion that it's flabbergasting that it's stunning that how can we invite reasonable doubt into this explanation when the only thing I doubt is the explanation itself. There's nothing in, inherently compelling about what, they're, what they're, the defense painted as the picture in response. And what's feeding this is we continue to move back now that we've addressed the verdict, go back to pretrial and the selection of the jury. And Stanley's defense counsel challenging every indigenous candidate for the trial creating an all-white jury where we can presume now that the that a group mentality or some kind of non-factor in that jury deliberation that only lasted for about I think it was like 19 hours or something that that, that there was nobody in there with a dissenting voice that said no matter what happens when people come into your property you cannot murder somebody that is not a that's not, that that never happened or at least we 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 don't know if it did it certainly doesn't show that there was any um, consolidation or or cohesion in that jury to suggest that you couldn't murder an indigenous youth. The idea being here is that the flawed system in which Canadian courts allow jury selection, um, there's a couple items there. One, indigenous folks not being able to get down to the battlefords to appear to be adjudicated to be on jury duty. Um, the challenge is constantly from the defense. And Talking us through that in the way it relates to some of the issues in the United States and how they have a different system of electing juries. Senator Murray Sinclair spoke about what we need to do in Canada to allow for a better representation on jury duty. Um, This is just another example of the way in which the colonial Canadian court uh, conspires, not conspires, but it, it certainly manifests itself over years and years and years to stack the deck against indigenous folks. Yeah, I think I was reading or I had heard, and the statistic or fact might be off, but I think I heard it a few times, was that I think the indigenous population within Saskatchewan is something around 10%, say. Uh, And obviously this is concentrated higher in different places geographically across the province. There's going to be more indigenous people up north, et cetera. But uh, all that aside, if indigenous peoples are um, at least a significant portion of the population in Saskatchewan, you would think then that there would be some representation by an Indigenous person on that jury, and yet what the defense did was basically dismiss anyone that they thought might uh, possibly be, uh, would disadvantage their client, I guess, in any way. So it's, not only is that immediately... um, problematic, obviously, because there is no representation. But then I resent or kind of reject the notion that a jury full of indigenous peoples would be any more racist or or biased than, you know, uh, I think the overwhelming idea was that if there was indigenous people on there, they would be racist or, sorry, I shouldn't be using racist, uh, prejudiced or biased against Stanley. And yet you have an all-white jury that then basically um, more or less condones or sees uh, Stanley in his defense as providing a justifiable reason for the murder of Colton. So you have this interesting or uh, problematic might be a better word kind of reversal here where for whatever reason, an all-white jury is unbiased, right? It's objective, it uh, is going to be rational, etc., and indigenous peoples do not have this capacity. I think this is the sort of prevailing or sort of underlying sort of ideology at play here, right, by the defense and by the Canadian justice system in general, that to have indigenous bodies on the jury would just... They couldn't... um, allow justice to be served in a way that would be equitable, that would be, you know, in keeping with how the Canadian courts like to conduct themselves. And what I think this does is it sort of naturalizes and normalizes whiteness as not only uh, how it takes up space and what spaces are accorded to it, but also 
the ability in which it can make uh, enormous kind of decisions or conclusions about things that have very direct material effects on mm. indigenous people. Hmm. Yeah. This is Dallas Hunt on At the Edge of Canada. I'm TJ Phillips. We have an extended live and studio version to talk about the Gerald Stanley acquittal and the continued outreach and attempts for, for justice for Colton Bushy. This situation isn't new in the history of Saskatchewan and Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations on the prairies. In particular, Peter Zosky article in McLean's from 1963 got a lot of run on Twitter yesterday. Uh, folks responding to it. Ian Mosby had a Twitter essay responding directly to this. The idea that, uh, or sorry, Zosky's article was around the murder of Alan Thomas, an Indigenous man in Saskatchewan by a group of non-Indigenous folks who were all acquitted of the murder. And Zosky's, though it was problematically written, attempted to dive into what the state of race relations is in uh, the Battlefords and in the Central West Territory of Treaty 6 in Saskatchewan. There was a big push on Twitter, I felt like, from the indigenous commenters on Twitter to reject the idea or reject the articulation and representation of Saskatchewan as the Mississippi of Canada or southern United States in the 50s uh, playing itself out in Canada. When in fact, this is actually what happened over the weekend. This is what this is Canada indigenous state relations since contact the violence of the colonial system, the segregation of indigenous populations, the past system, the Indian Act, residential school, Indian hospitals, you name it, the the removal of indigenous folks from Canadian mainstream society on the prairies, the arming of farmers, the arming of settlers. And it was all summed up in one very pithy tweet, really smart tweet, by uh, Leonard Sumner that said they built the jails for us, they built the courts for them. And give us your sense of this, what you would, what I think you would say is the manifestation of colonial violence over time, how this is yet another example of that manifestation of colonial violence over time. This isn't new, this isn't isolated, isn't, this isn't a specter of Mississippi in the 50s. This is the lived reality of Saskatchewan right now today in 2018. Yeah, I think that the comparisons with uh, what happens to black lives and black bodies in the U.S., while I think sometimes there might be productive comparisons there, I am hesitant to sort of conflate these experiences, and I yeah. think a lot of people are speaking to this, that we shouldn't actually... Uh, there are multiple contexts going on and operating simultaneously, and uh, I'm much more interested in you know, listening to um, black people's in solidarity and to see, you know, how we're, we are all affected by these violent systems, whether it's colonialism or the transatlantic slave trade, the sort of uh, histories of these systems that are very much present today. Yet I think sometimes there is, uh, there is a movement that happens a little too quickly that sort of, you know, collapses all the differences and contexts that are operating um, at the same time. But what I would say about so I too heard that's uh, uh, read the Subner tweet Leonard's tweet. Um, uh, they made the laws to protect themselves. They made the jails for us. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that you see this playing out not only historically but obviously in a contemporary sense with you know. Um, uh, Gerald Stanley being acquitted and not facing anything resembling a sort of kind of what could be articulated as justice. Uh, you see this with the over-representation of indigenous peoples in the prison population right now. I think mm -hmm. I read somewhere that it's upwards to 80% in Saskatchewan. So you see this in very material bodily ways in the ways in which certain people are allowed or over-represented over in particular spaces. Um, but yeah, I think you're right to bring up that history of residential schools, of the clearing of Saskatchewan for settlement, of the past system, which uh, is really what 
the resonances of the past system in this case I don't think can be ignored either. It's uh, indigenous youth were not in the spaces that were are accorded to them in certain settler imaginaries. So therefore, by virtue of not being in those spaces, some sort of punitive action is going to occur. And in this instance, it is a uh, extreme physical violence. Um, and all of these things are operating, you know, simultaneously. This is what kind of settler colonialism does, right? It eliminates to replace. So what it does is it uh, attempts to eliminate indigenous bodies, uh, indigenous cultures, mm. politics, um, by whatever means necessary, and then it seeks to replace this uh, with, you know, another sort of order or regime, right? In this case, mm. it would be a sort of settler colonial Regime. So in that way, settler colonialism is productive in the sense that it produces another legal ordering. So in this, this is how we see a system that allows someone like Gerald Stanley manifest itself, right? It's most definitely tied to these histories of um, displacement, dispossession, uh, starvation, all of the things that not only moved bodies across space, but attempted to eradicate bodies within those spaces entirely. Hmm. And I don't... The way this manifests itself with Colton Bushi and the other indigenous youth being present in that space is things that we've seen historically, which is when indigenous peoples enter spaces that in settler imaginaries they are not supposed to be in, they are met with overwhelming violence. And that's I want to tease this out just a little bit. The the way that you said when indigenous youth are not in the space that the settler imaginary accords to them. What is the idealized settler space or imagined space for indigenous people? I mean, I think that's a tough question because I think the answer is in some ways horrific. It's also in some ways strategic. And in also another way, it's assimilative, and it's also an ordering. It's its own ordering of space. Um, so when we think of what were the trespasses, the Canadian court system likes to suggest to us that the first and most primary trespass was that into Stanley's property. That is the most literal example of that trespass. But in the settler imaginary, phantasmatically, where have indigenous bodies actually trespassed here? Yeah, I think that when you mentioned the idealized sort of site or space that settlers or that settler imaginary might accord for indigenous populations or peoples, I think that ideally for settlers and what the history of settler colonialism has uh, sort of indicated to everyone is that the idealized space would be in the ground for indigenous peoples not mm. to exist entirely, right? That said, uh, I think that the sort of trespasses that went, that happened here, um, I think it's ridiculous for Indigenous youth and Indigenous peoples from Saskatchewan to feel like they're trespassing on any lands that historically have been their ancestral homelands, right? So the logic that it was uh, Gerald Stanley's castle and therefore he has to keep the, you know, hordes at bay that are trying to scaffold or get over his, you know, castle walls. So that whole imagery that it it evokes, I think is incredibly problematic because it doesn't account for the fact that Gerald Stanley's castle is on indigenous lands, right? And uh, these lands are acquired through a variety of means, whether it's outright, uh, outright dispossession and displacement, whether it is through... Uh, what is supposed to be the shared tenure of lands hmm. through treaty or something like that, sort of. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, in this sense, uh, what these indigenous youth did was they uh, entered into private property, which, again, doesn't accord with how indigenous peoples may perceive of this land, right? 
But this is certainly how the defense framed it and how Stanley undoubtedly thought about it at the time. And therefore, this, for whatever reason, warrants uh, immediate violence or their death. Um, So the trespassing here is happening not only in a physical or bodily sense in that these indigenous youths are, are going into a space that that by all means is their territory and they should have access to since historically it's indigenous lands and being met with this violence from Stanley, but they're also crossing a sort of imaginary, right? They're entering into a place where it would be inconceivable to see them there, meaning Mm -hmm. this is my private property, you know, get off my land, get out of my castle. Mm -hmm. And so... And this happens all over Canada, right? And it's happened. It actually doesn't, the context, whether it's rural or urban, it always seems as though Indigenous peoples are in too many spaces or taking up too much space always to a sort of settler colonial imaginary. And so, yeah, the crime, as far as I can see it, that Stanley and the defense may have... um, sort of conjured up that the youth were doing that day, indigenous youth, was simply existing in spaces that historically they've been allowed to exist in, but in the contemporary moment that is framed by all these sort of settler colonial mechanisms and regimes, they should not have been in because of these sort of colonial logics. I like the way that you unpack that in terms of colonial logics, because what this case ultimately did, whether it's to the meta narrative of settler colonialism and biopolitics or the literal trespassing of um, indigenous folks into private property, and I'm using square quotes on the radio, to the hang fire and the magic bullet theory, the introduction of um, reasonable doubt and the plausibility of an implausible action to the actions in the street to disrupt Canadian mainstream society, to let them know that we're not okay. And then the analysis and the intellectualizing now today and what's happening over the weekend all seeks to go back to the same essential point that we're being distracted from the fact that an indigenous youth was shot and nobody is going to see, to receive a punishment for that. So even with, the means that are open to us to seek justice, they are wholly inadequate in providing necessary action in a situation that is so uncomplicatedly disastrous and tragic for Colton Bushy's family. So I think that I, I appreciate you coming on the show today. I'm going to, before we go, I'll get you out of here on this. What's next? I know that there's formal appellate processes they can appeal or the or the province can appeal on behalf of the family there will be more actions i know that most of indigenous canada is waiting with bated breath to see what happens in the raymond cormier trial and the death of tina fontaine which could be another disastrous blow if he's acquitted what is next for the solidified and, and, and cohesive community for, for Indigenous folks in Canada. What, what, what are we going to do next? Well, I think there's a variety of things that can be done. Um, so I read today that uh, um, members of Colton Bushy's or Bushy's family are currently in Ottawa and discussing with ministers there um, what a sort of re- reconceptualized justice system might look like. I'm not going to speculate as to what that might look like um, but uh, I know that that's what the family is currently doing for others, um, indigenous communities and peoples, you know, across what is currently Canada and the U.S. I think that there's going to be a lot of reflection, a lot of rage, a lot of writing, a lot of communing, and just really trying to parse out what exactly happened and what are the logics that allow these things to happen and as you mentioned with Tina Fontaine allow them to continually happen why do people um, how are people allowed to um, take the lives of indigenous youth and how can a state deem this as either justifiable or just uh, okay in a sort of everyday um, material way. Um, I look forward to the immense amount of 
creative and critical work that indigenous scholars, indigenous communities are going to do around this issue, the writing that's going to be done, the thinking, the uh, sharing of grief. Um, I I think that this is going to be... Um, it, it's certainly going to alter the landscape in a way that... Um, is going to allow for all sorts of sites of hopefully generative change. I um, I, I also hope too that uh, indigenous peoples, you know, continue to live their life and to feel joy because this system so routinely um, disallows us or prohibits that joy or punishes us for this joy. So I hope that Indigenous youth will be able to, you know, go for a swim and go into lands that are historically their ancestral homelands and to just uh, not fear the threat of violence and immediate violence. So I know what I'll be doing personally is I will continue to write about it and I will speak with my students or the students in my classes about it and um, just continue to hopefully be um, a... Uh, site of support for not only indigenous peoples uh, across or throughout what is currently currently Canada, but also for you know uh, Colton Bushy's relatives as well. I know Jade a little bit, and I know you know some of the other people involved in this. And so I'm just I want to send them all my support and love. And yeah, well said. And that comes up for me too. All, nothing but love for the Baptiste, the Tatusses, the Bushies. Uh, we're with you, we're thinking about you, and we're fighting with you and for you on this as you continue to fight against a system that was rigged from the start. If you haven't seen the video yet of Colton Bushy, or sorry, excuse me, of Gerald Stanley being escorted out of the courtroom after the verdict was read, it's been flooding through Twitter, uh, flooding through social media. Uh, the, the, the cries of disbelief and of anguish from his mom, uh, devastating and heartbreaking to listen to and watch to, but... A juror ran out. Gerald Stanley was rushed out by police. And I was saying this to Dallas uh, yesterday when we were prepping for the show. That is the physical embodiment of getting away with murder in Canada. That's exactly what it looks like as the cops run you out of the courtroom. That certainly looked that way. Certainly looked that way. Dallas, for all you do in uh, Indigenous literature research... Uh, indigenous activism actions supporting the revitalization of the of indigenous languages working with indigenous youth indigenous pedagogies and representing treaty eight and your home so proudly thank you and thank you for coming on hi hi Hexa, thank you we are uh th this was a extra extended version of at the edge of canada that uh dallas was happy to join us on appreciate you tuning in um, again, the fight continues, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to At the Edge of Canada. Uh, At the Edge of Canada is recorded at the UMFM studios. It's on the traditional uh, Treaty 1 territory of the Anishinaabeg, the Cree, the Oji Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene people in the homeland of the Métis Nation. We'll be back next week with more check-ins with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community. Thanks, everybody. And uh, you can catch me on Twitter at TFillers.
Winnipeg. You're listening to CJUM 101.5 FM, your hit-free radio station.